right, we'll get started with the second hour of this class. In the first hour, we spent most of our time defining what grace is, the unmerited favor of God, what it is and how we experience it, especially through salvation. We'll wrap up this part of the class with just a few comments from me, and then I'll, I'll give you one more chance for questions and comments before we totally change gears. I want to say a few things about growing in God's grace. When we fully embrace the grace of God, we eventually recognize that we don't personally own any of our accomplishments. This is a struggle for many of us, I think, but we don't own our talents. Even when we are in possession of them, we don't own them. We don't own any of our blessings and we don't own our successes. And we can't fully understand that until we understand God's grace. These talents, blessings, successes, even salvation, especially salvation, are all gifts from God that we can choose to receive. Every good thing that we ever do is ultimately the product of God's grace working within us. And this is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me, which was with me. This is the attitude of a person who has fully accepted the place of God's grace in their life. We labor abundantly, but only according to the grace that is working within us. So when we treat our time, our talents, and our other assets as gifts from God according to His grace rather than personal achievements, this completely changes our outlook on life. When I recognize that these, pro these things as products of God's grace, I'll be more inclined to use them for God and less for myself because they're from God anyway. They belong to God anyway. And that makes it that much easier to use them for God, knowing they're His. The more we understand God's grace, the more God's grace can work through us. So think about this statement in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This sort of implies that you have a role in that grace. You do have a role in that grace. You have to choose to be strong in the grace. So how does that work? How can you choose to be strong in the favor of God? Here's how that works. We have to choose to rely more on the grace of God and less on yourself. Choose to trust more in the grace of God and trust less in yourself. Focus more on God's strengths and less on your weaknesses. So latch on to God's nature and let go of your nature. It's only when we accept 
our own incompetence that we can actually grow in the grace of God. The Apostle Peter said it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord and of Jesus our Lord. He's telling us that there is more grace available to us. Grace available through knowledge. More favors, more blessings, more peace, and more work when we choose to grow in that grace. I want to pause again to see if there's any questions or comments left over from the first session before we get into a brand new topic. So are there any questions or comments left over from before? All right, let's go into part two of this study. So far, we've been talking almost entirely about God's grace and God's mercy, God's nature, God's attributes, God's personality. And now it's time to talk about how we reflect that in our own lives. Remember, gracious and merciful, these are attributes of God. And they are also attributes of God's people. We've been spending a lot of time talking about what God does. Now we'll talk about what you do. I stumbled across a passage recently that I know in my life I've read dozens and dozens of times, but this last time I read it, it caught my attention. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul said, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. When I read this the last time, I was almost startled. That's a heavy idea, isn't it? Be imitators of God. Imitate God. Act like God. That's what Paul's saying. Be like God. It literally means to mimic God. Whatever God does, you do it. However God thinks, you think. God's behavior should be your behaviors. So in this part of the lesson, I want to explore how Christians imitate the mercy and grace of God. This is a duty of Christian people, but it is also a natural byproduct of people who have received grace and understand it. When you have received grace and you understand it, you're inclined to give grace. When you've received mercy and you understand it, you're inclined to give mercy. The secular world is definitely capable of expressing grace and mercy. This happens all of the time, but it's always something inferior to God's grace and mercy. And Jesus makes this point over in Luke chapter 6. If you turn with me there. Luke chapter 6 describes what God is like and how Christians can follow his example. Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36. Luke 6, verses 32 through 36. Jesus said, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Christians are different. Verse 35, Jesus said, But love your enemies, do good, and lend hoping for nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Be imitators of God. There is nothing divine or special about lending money to people who I know will pay me back. That is not an attribute of God. If I lend money to people who I expect to pay me back. But when we give with no expectation of getting back, that's when we're actually acting like God. When we love people who love us, there's nothing divine or special about that. Anybody can do that. Loving somebody who loves you is not a characteristic of God. But when we love our enemies, when we're kind to our enemies, that's divine. That's imitating God. When we show mercy to evil people, then, then we're reflecting the character of God. I think it's important to point out that these are learned behaviors. As we personally grow in the grace of God, we learn to be gracious and merciful like God, with the same spirit of God, with the same goals as God, with the same motives as God. Just about everything that we said about God's grace is reflected in the Christian life, too. We said that God's grace is his unmerited favor, his preference to bless and forgive, a manifestation of his character given according to his goodwill towards us, not because of our works, not as a wage, and not because he is in some way indebted to us. That's God's grace. Christian grace is the same. Our grace that we show to other people is our unmerited favor. It's our preference to bless and forgive. It's our manifestation of our character given according to our goodwill towards others, not because of their good works, not as a wage because of their good behavior, and not because we're in some way indebted to others. So, God is gracious. We should be gracious, not because of who they are, but because of who you are. This is how God's grace works, and this is how our grace should work. God is gracious to us because of who he is, not because of who we are, and we reflect that same behavior in our interactions with other people. We give grace and kindness and mercy because of who we are, not necessarily because of who they are. You're a child of God. God is gracious and merciful, and you are too if you're imitating God. God gives grace because he wants to, because his nature is gracious. What about you as a Christian? Christians give grace because we want to, because our nature has been transformed to be gracious like God's nature. God's grace is not earned. A Christian's grace that we show in kindness towards other people is not earned. Sometimes it's earned, but it's not completely earned, because if it was only earned, it wouldn't be grace anymore. God gives grace in spite of our works, not because of our works. What about you as a Christian? Christians give grace to others in spite of the other person's works, not necessarily because of their works. 
And in all of this, we need to notice something that I think is very important. Remember with God's grace, God's grace also describes how he feels towards us. God likes us. He favors us. He rejoices over us. He prefers to bless us. And so notice that grace is not just a behavior. Grace is not just a way of treating people. The grace that we show as Christians is a way of valuing people. If we try to be gracious robotically, we won't be especially gracious. Our expressions of mercy and grace cannot be robotic and insincere. If we try to show grace just because we have to, it won't be that gracious. If we try to show mercy just because God said so, we won't actually be very merciful. God gives grace because he values us. And as Christian people, we should do the same. We give grace because we actually value other people. God gave grace to us when we were still unrepentant and undeserving. As Christians, we should be the same. We give grace to others even when they are unrepentant and undeserving. God gives grace to his enemies. The Bible says as Christians, we're also gracious towards our enemies. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, Nate was on a little football team, and Nate had a bully on his team. During one of the first football games, I looked over at the sidelines, and there was this pretty big kid who was really being cruel to my son. And you know that feeling when somebody else is being mean to your kid? You know that feeling. The child was punching Nate, pushing Nate, grabbing him by the face mask and throwing him on the ground. And I let that go for a while. And eventually I told Nate that Nate should defend himself. He should get away from the problem if he could, but eventually he should defend himself. He doesn't have to stand there and take that. And so Nate and that little boy had several little wrestling matches over on the sidelines. And one day after a practice, the bully who'd been bothering Nate dropped his water bottle and Nate, without hesitation, picked it up and handed it to him. And I'll tell you what, as a father, that made me really happy. We don't have to hate our enemies. In fact, if you're a Christian, you can't hate your enemies. Sinners hate their enemies. People in this world, they hate their enemies. But if you're a Christian, you love your enemies. Sinners, people without Jesus Christ in their life, they seek retaliation. But if you're a Christian, you're seeking reconciliation. Sinners, people without Christ, they celebrate judgment, but not you. If you're a Christian, you celebrate grace. You celebrate mercy. You celebrate forgiveness. Your nature is not the nature of this world. Sinners repay evil for evil. But if you're a Christian, you're not like that. If you're a Christian, you choose to overcome evil with good, to conquer evil with kindness. And this is how Paul said it in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. This is a familiar passage, but we should read it together in the context of this lesson. Romans chapter 12, we're going to read verses 17 through 21. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. 
This is what a gracious, merciful Christian is like. A person who's been transformed by the grace and mercy of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, the Apostle Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you have enemies in your life and you retaliate, you lost. When you have enemies in your life and you celebrate their judgment, you lost. How important are grace and mercy relative to the other commandments of God? Just how important is this? If you were to make a list of the most important thing that God says to do, the most important things that God says to do, where would all this fall? How important is it for Christian people to be gracious and merciful? Well, the Bible says these are among the most important. At minimum, they make the top three. If we withhold grace and mercy, we are putting our souls in jeopardy. You remember the condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what are those? Justice, mercy, and faith. These, he says, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. This is something we should remember as we're choosing to exercise grace and mercy in our own lives. The commandments of God are not of equal weights. Tithing is important, but showing mercy is more important. Let me give you a few other examples. Acapella singing, that's important, but showing mercy is more important. We all agree here that mutual edification is important. But showing mercy is even more important. My point is that we should value the procedures of the church, the procedures of the assembly of the church. Those things are important. But showing mercy in daily living is more important. And so James 2 verse 13 concludes, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. We can't say to ourselves, well, we did everything just what right. We did it all right. We did it by the book. No, we didn't do it by the book if we haven't shown mercy. If we are unmerciful with others, God will be unmerciful with us. And that should scare us. If we are unmerciful with others, God will be unmerciful towards us. If we are unforgiving towards others, that's exactly how God will treat us. If we withhold grace from other people, God will withhold his grace from us. Now, I'm saying this like this is really easy to do. 
But obviously we understand that that's not the case. It is hard to imitate God. It is hard. It's okay to accept that it's difficult to imitate the grace and mercy of God. The struggle that we feel in expressing the grace of God is the same old struggle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh in you wants you to condemn. Condemning is just as natural as can be, but the spirit wants you to forgive. The flesh wants you to retaliate. Retaliating against your enemies is just as natural as can be, but the spirit wants you to show mercy. The flesh tells you to hate. If you've ever wanted to hate, you're just doing what's natural. But the Spirit commands you and compels you to forgive. The flesh wants you to help yourself, but the Spirit wants you to help others. The flesh wants you to glory in yourself, but the Spirit wants you to glory in God. And that's the difference between living in the flesh and living in the Spirit. So to say it another way, being gracious and merciful and reflecting these attributes of God, this is a salvation issue. Sometimes we do this. We make lists of things that really, really matter. These are salvation issues. Have you ever had a discussion with someone about the unique beliefs of your church, of your congregation? And a lot of times the conversation ends in, okay, maybe I agree, but is this a salvation issue? Being gracious and merciful. These are salvation issues. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. Eric, this answers your question from earlier. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. For those who live according to the flesh, you just do what the flesh compels you to do. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It is a struggle living according to the Spirit of God, imitating God. At first it hurts, but Paul's promise is eventually that's a place of peace. Right now I want to address a potential point of confusion. I think sometimes we imagine grace and conviction as being mutually exclusive. Sometimes we think that grace and conviction are mutually exclusive, like you can't be both. If you're being gracious and merciful, then you're being soft and spineless. Or if you're being convicted and uncompromising, then you're being hateful and judgmental. This is a false dichotomy. It doesn't have to be that way. Let me say it like this. This is a helpful thing for me to think about because I struggle with this. Sometimes I feel like when I'm being convicted that I'm not being gracious, and when I'm being gracious, I'm not being convicted. It doesn't have to be that way. You should be the most convicted person your neighbors know, and also the most gracious person your neighbors know. It is possible, necessary, and essential to be both completely convicted and completely gracious. And if we can't be both then we're not actually very good representatives of God and his church. One of my favorite stories on this comes from John chapter 8. You remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery? After he clears the room, and it's just Jesus and her, what does Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. 
go and sin no more. That's what I'm talking about right now. Jesus was the perfect man and had the perfect approach to this sin, both convicted and gracious. The thing to notice from that statement is truth and love can be served together. You can tell people the truth and show them love at the same time. Conviction and compassion can be served together. You don't have to choose one or the other. Honesty and kindness can be served together. You don't have to choose one or the other. You can be completely abhorred by sin and yet gracious to the sinner at the same time. You don't have to choose one or the other. I think what I'm talking about here is a living example of Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Now, sometimes we say to ourselves, well, I love them and I told them the truth, so I'm good. (laughs) I'm in the clear. That's not really what Paul meant. In a spirit of love, with kindness, giving consideration to the effect that we're wanting. If you really want to have a meaningful influence on anyone, if you actually want to have a meaningful influence on anybody, you must be both. You must be overflowing with conviction and overflowing with compassion. So what does this look like? And what does this feel like when you are faced with an unrepentant sinner? What do you do then? What do you do then when you are faced with an unrepentant sinner? Somebody who's caught up in sin and is perfectly happy to be there. Well, God knows what that feels like. God knows what that feels like because we were that person at one point. The unrepentant sinner, perfectly happy to be there. So how do you feel? You don't have to hate or despise that person. And I'm telling you, we are so inclined to do that. We are inclined to look down on these pathetic people who just can't get their life together, who aren't even trying. That's the wrong way to look at it. We don't have to hate or despise them. You don't have to feel disdain towards them. You should feel sorry for them. You should feel compassion for their confusion. You should feel empathy for them because you used to be like that too. These people don't need a judge. That's coming. Right now they need a doctor. Turn over to Mark chapter 9, another familiar story that we'll read in the context of this discussion. Mark chapter 9 Verses 10 through 13. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So think about this. This idea can be abused. So let me clarify this from the beginning. This idea can be abused. But how did Jesus handle sinners? He ate lunch with them. He talked with them. Jesus showed them kindness. 
And I am certain he talked to them about repentance. So what about you? How do you handle unrepentant sinners? This is what mercy looks like in daily living. Mercy is not apathy towards the sin, and it is obviously not approval of the sin, but it is patience with the sinner. Showing mercy means acknowledging that the sinner is lost and confused. And if we remember that, that this sinner, this person is lost and confused, it changes our approach. It's an acknowledgement as we face these situations that their conscience is broken and they need help. This is the idea of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This is really talking about people inside the church, but I think it mostly applies to our engagements with people outside the church. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. That's the first step. Restore them in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It's funny how things stick with you. I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you this story, but maybe you'll remember it. Several years ago, I was mindlessly listening to the radio on the way home after a weekend of preaching, actually coming home from Summersville, and apparently I was listening to some kind of country gospel music station, which, not my normal genre, but there I was, tuned into that station, and a song came on the radio called Love Them to Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you this is good music. You all are going to find out because I know all of you will go home immediately after this and look up the song. Don't think less of me. It wasn't like a great song to hum along to, but I found the message to be profoundly accurate and convicting. So much so that here I am quoting a country music song in front of 400 people, right? I feel slightly better about this after Jay quoted several songs yesterday. If he can do it, I can do it too, I guess. So I'm not going to completely quote the song, but the substance of the song is this, that the world is full of all of these starving people who are homeless, helpless. So what should you do? The chorus says, love them all the way to Jesus, without condemnation, without compromising. That's it. That's the thought. And it took a country song at 11 o'clock at night to get me to think about that point. How do you save a sinner from the wrath of God? How do you do that? Do you judge them harder? Will that do it? Will you lecture them harder? Will that convert them? Will you discipline them harder? Will that bring them to Christ? No. No, it won't. And I think we all know that. Most of the time, that approach won't work. Love them harder. That's what works. When you're faced with an unrepentant sinner who needs to see the love of God, your job is to love them harder. And so Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. James said, mercy triumphs over judgment. We need to be uncompromising in our convictions, but equally uncompromising in kindness. 
And I wonder if one without the other is just utterly useless. If we're completely convicted, but not kind, that's probably not going to do anybody any good. If we're only kind, but not convicted, that probably won't do anyone any good. Showing kindness, showing grace, showing patience, showing mercy, these things are actually demonstrations of strength. These are not demonstrations of weakness. Just the opposite. Weak people are quick to judge. Strong people are quick to listen. Weak people enjoy being rude. Strong people enjoy being kind. Weak people hold grudges. Strong people forgive. Weak people are slaves to themselves and their flesh, but strong people are slaves to God and his spirit. And when we are slaves to God and his spirit, God's nature is borne out in our own lives. This is another point I wanted to stop for a few minutes and take your questions and comments. Are there any questions or comments? Okay, we got some somewhere. Right back here, or maybe over there. This goes back to something you were talking about right at the end of the last session was about uh, us getting the perception that our works are somehow paying for something or uh, earning something. I think sometimes we have a tendency to use our works to avoid repentance as a Christian. You know, I'll just do some more good works. I won't need to repent of this thing. I'll just go forward and do some do some good works and I can avoid that. That's a great point. Sort of makes me think of another country song, actually. <laughs> I can't quote it, but the song exists and many of you know it. You can put a $20 bill on the plate for what you did last Sunday and another 20 for what you're going to do this week. And I remember that phrase, too, because that's such a real attitude, actually. That you can do something bad and it'll be fine as long as you also do something good. Great point. I just wanted to underscore the point you made a little bit with the woman caught in adultery. I've always loved how he handled that. And it's so different how we handle that. That idea of neither do I condemn you. So right here, right now, I'm not going to tear you down further. Right. Go home. But don't sin anymore. That, right. The acknowledgement of the sin and the grace, and I just, I've always loved that. I love that you you brought that up, and it's it's hard. Yeah, but we can do it. Yeah, and I would go further to say we must do it. We must. If if all we do is say I don't condemn you, that that's not going to help them. If all we say is stop sinning, I don't know that that will help them too much either. But if we offer both that conviction and the compassion, that's what transforms a person. Great point. Back here behind you. Throughout your lesson, um, the words of Jesus 
keep coming to my mind. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Thank you. I think maybe what you mean by that is if we're actually going to be worshipers of God, we have to worship him according to his spirit, not according to our flesh, maybe not following the inclinations of our flesh, but in spirit and truth. Feel free to comment further if that's not quite what you were thinking. Well, there are two sides. Uh, one has to do with the recognition of what is right. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, there's the spirit. There's Good. the graciousness, the mercy. Great point. Thank These you. things work together there. As you brought out, these aren't polar opposites. Great point. Thank you. Over here. I know this wasn't exactly what you were implying, uh, but it can be misunderstood that when we forgive other people and we are merciful to them and we do not show judgment, that everything can go back the way it was and there's no consequences. Right. But there's discernment. You would not hire a person to work in a daycare center who has a history of child abuse, for example. So, right. so there is discernment that we use in dealing with people and relationships where we are not necessarily condemning them, but there, there is still a consequence. There's still a natural result from whatever it is that has happened. And so that I think there needs to be a balance there and discernment right. that we use. That's a great point. I thought about making some comments on that, but I think we'll probably get into it quite a lot on Friday as we talk about God's inclination to forgive iniquity and what that forgiveness looks like. That's a great point. Hey, Tad, I'm going to have a second question for you. Go ahead. One of the concepts that I'm just amazed by in the Bible is, is sanctification. It's an interesting word and a concept as well of the process of becoming holy, more like God. And as I think about these concepts that you've been covering this morning, any thoughts from your end about the growth process as a um, maturation or consistently getting better? Because we don't just wake up one day and we're the most gracious person you've ever met. Right. There's some things that have to take place, and it's a process, kind of like sanctification. I don't know if you have any thoughts for that. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the process of sanctification, becoming holy, and becoming like God includes this exact subject, becoming more merciful and more gracious than we would be if we were living in the flesh, becoming merciful and gracious like God. I talked about that growth process just briefly at the end of the first session that We grow in that grace by choosing to become more dependent on God and less dependent on ourselves. And I think sometimes that's counterintuitive. We think to ourselves, well, I just need to work harder. I just need to try harder. I need to to add more rules to my life even, and then I'll get this right. And actually, that's only going to take us so far. 
that'll only take us so far. So I think the growth process is investing more completely in the Spirit of God, realizing that we cannot do it on our own. And again, that sounds counterintuitive. It's when I accept I can't do it on my own, that's when I'm enabled to grow. When I come completely invested in God's Spirit, ingesting His Word routinely, regularly, when that becomes my diet, I think that's how we grow and mature in this process. Good question. We got one more up here. Just wanted your opinion on uh, the, the consequences. Uh, there is a difference between consequences and discipline, and I think sometimes we confuse the two. So there are natural consequences, but then there are also consequences intended to be disciplining or punishment. So sure, I think we need to take um, be careful on which one we're really using. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's that's a good point because. For example, I asked a prosecuting attorney one time, why exactly do we put people in jail? <laughs> why do we do that? Is it to change their behavior? And her answer was no, actually, because it doesn't generally change their behavior. It doesn't actually give them more discipline most of the time. And I think that's kind of to your point that sometimes there are consequences for our action that may or may not be the same as the consequences that lead to greater discipline. So now I agree that's something we need to weigh out carefully. I'm going to carry on for now and we'll take additional comments and questions later. So what are some specific ways? We've talked in generalities for a while, but what are some very specific ways that we can demonstrate grace like God demonstrates grace? Remember that grace is unmerited favor. It's unearned kindness. Jesus gives a few examples back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. Similar to what we've read already. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun to shine on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is another place we should be imitators of God. Jesus said, be kind to those that curse you. Has anyone ever said anything mean about you? That's probably happened. Anybody ever said anything untrue about you, hurtful or hateful about you? These things happen. When you're a Christian under the influence of the grace of God, you show grace in those situations. You're kind to those people. You do good for those who are evil to you. You're good to people who do nothing for you. And when you do this, that's when you're actually like God. Grace and mercy in the face of hate and persecution is a divine quality. And in some ways, this is the ultimate test of our spiritual maturity. So when you need to deal with sin in someone else's life, my recommendation is first 
to do what Jesus did. Take them out to lunch. Talk with them. Show them kindness. Ask them about their family. Tell them how much you care about them. Tell them that you want to hear their story. And only then will you be ready to talk to them about repentance. And I'm not saying that you should make them your friend. I'm actually not saying that. But I am saying that you must be friendly. You should be the friendliest person they have ever known. Show compassion for their souls without condoning their sins. Grace, mercy, kindness, forgiveness, these are not signs of apathy. Just the opposite. If you're a Christian person and you're exercising these qualities in your life as representatives of God, you're actually showing them how much you care. The story of David and excuse me, the story of David and Mephibosheth is an interesting example of what grace can look like. I want to read you this story. Turn there if you want. This is 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 3. 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 3. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said to him, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, who I may show the kindness of God? So I said to him, to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, who is lame in his feet. When Mephibosheth was brought to David, he said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you the kindness, kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. This is an interesting story. Why did David choose to show kindness to Mephibosheth? It was not because of Mephibosheth's character. It was not because of anything Mephibosheth could do for David or ever would do for David. He showed him kindness because David loved his father, Jonathan. He showed him kindness because he had made a covenant with his father, Jonathan, and because he wanted to show the kindness of God. So when we learn to be gracious with God, our grace is like this. We seek out opportunities to do good, not because of their character, but because of our character, not because of what they've done for us or could ever do for us, but because we love their father, God, but because we have a covenant with God, because we want to show them the kindness of God. And this is why Jesus said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? That's not grace. That's not grace. That's not mercy. Grace is not about reciprocity. We don't hand out good works. If you're a Christian, you don't hand out good works with the expectation of getting good works in return. And I've heard people complain about this before. Well, I did all these nice things for this person. They've never done a nice thing for me. Well, that's too bad, but that was not grace that you showed. If you're mad that they didn't 
show some reciprocity, then that wasn't grace. And that's no different than what any sinner is capable of doing. So you can think about it like this. And we know that this definitely has real life implications. If you're a Christian, people should not have to earn our kindness. In fact, that goes so far as to say is we have no right to withhold grace and mercy from other people. We didn't earn God's kindness towards us, and people shouldn't have to earn our kindness. It's just like what Jesus said to the apostles in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. After they'd been given the Spirit to work miracles, Jesus said to them, Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. The gifts that you personally have, you didn't pay for that. You didn't earn those gifts. You didn't earn those blessings. It wasn't by your own merit that God gave you those talents. And so just like God said to the apostles, you have freely received, therefore freely give. Do good for free. No strings attached, no expectation of reciprocity. Do good for people, not because of what they did for you, but because of what God did for you. So give grace. God expects us to give grace. And he expects us to give grace because he gave us grace. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when God gives us grace, there are strings attached. God gives grace with the expectation that we minister it to other people. I'll give you a few specific examples. You have wealth. Maybe this doesn't apply to everybody, but it applies to some of you. You have wealth according to God's grace so that you can share it with people who don't. Maybe you don't have wealth, but you have time according to God's grace. And he gave it to you so you could share it with other people. Maybe you don't have much of that, but maybe you've got a strong back according to God's grace. So you could use it for people who don't. Maybe think about this one. Maybe you have a stable family life, according to God's grace, so that you can share it with people who don't. You do good as a demonstration of your worth, not as a measure of their worth. And notice that all of this affects God's reputation. What we do with God's grace affects God's reputation. Radiating grace in accordance with the grace we received personally brings honor to God, and that's the goal. Our behaviors are a reflection of God. People don't see God, but they'll see you. People experience God's grace when they experience it through you. They experience God's mercy when they experience it through you. They experience God's nature when they see God's nature in you, when they see you imitating the personality of God. 
when Nate was a little boy, I tell a lot of stories about kids when I'm speaking just because that's where I'm at in life. Someday it'll be stories about grandkids and other things, but right now it's stories about kids. When Nate was a little boy, he disobeyed me. That didn't happen once, but there was one time in particular that I remember. He disobeyed me, and I took him to his bedroom to discipline him. And he knew what was coming. He knew the rules, and he knew the consequences for breaking these rules. And as we walked into his room, he started crying uncontrollably. And I could have been wrong, but in my judgment, he was genuinely upset at himself for breaking the rules. He wasn't being defiant. He wasn't upset with me. He wasn't even resisting me or resisting the discipline that he knew was coming. And when I saw his genuine remorse, I felt like as a parent I had a choice to make. Do I follow through with my own rules and enforce those consequences? Or do I show mercy? And in this particular instance, I don't always choose this, but in this particular instance, I chose to show mercy. Because children need to learn discipline from us, but they also need to learn mercy from us. And this very thought crossed my mind that as I deal with my children, I need to show them the nature of God. God is not all judgment. God is also merciful. And I need to reflect that in how I handle my children. And this highlights, I think, an important point. Maybe this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Grace and mercy should be expressed by Christian people in all of our relationships. All of them. In families, between parents and children, but also, especially, in the church, between one Christian and another, and just in the daily grind of life, when we are dealing with, with the lost. We do owe a special level of grace inside the church, but it is just as important in our secular relationships. We can't show grace to our brethren in the church and then be okay with withholding grace from people who aren't our brethren. At all times, we are representatives of God. And if we start distributing or withholding grace according to the qualifications of other people, then it's not actually grace anymore. Because Christians show grace at all times for all people. So let me give you some very specific example. Give some grace to that waitress that botches your order. Give some grace to that person who cut you off in traffic. Give some grace to that kid who seems needlessly shy and awkward. Give some grace to the adult that seems needlessly shy and awkward. Give some grace to the person who let you down. A few weeks ago, I had an appointment to meet someone who was to do some work for me. I had to leave the house at 6 a.m. I don't know about you, but that's very early for me. I had to leave the house at 6 a.m. and drive two hours to meet this person. And they weren't there. So I waited around for three hours, and they never came. I was frustrated. I was on the verge of angry. So what should I do in that situation? 
Should I send them an angry text message? Should I trash their reputation in the community? Should I tell them they're a bum and I'll find somebody else to help me? I'm glad I didn't do any of those things because I recently found out that this man's wife died last year and he's now raising five kids on his own. I would have been so embarrassed if I had said anything cruel to him. This is a peripheral issue, but it's still a good place to end. Grace is easier when we stop assuming the worst in people. That waitress that botched your order, maybe she is careless and lazy, or maybe she had a worse day than you've ever known. That person that cut you off in traffic, maybe they are rude and reckless, or maybe they actually are in a bigger hurry than you are. That kid that seems shy and awkward, maybe his home environment is a wreck, and maybe your demonstration of patience and kindness will change their life. When we see these situations that are an inconvenience to us as opportunities, I do think our behavior is completely different. These are the moments in the daily grind of life that we can show people what Christians are like. There's a lot of pseudo-Christians out there that give God a bad name. That can't be us. We can show people what God is like, preferring to give grace, preferring to bless, preferring to withhold consequences and judgment, and instead give mercy. This is a uniquely Christian way of viewing people. It's a God-like way of viewing people. Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 12, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and blameless, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. This scripture describes the personality of God imitated by God's people. So this is my conclusion. Know God so you can be like him. Know his grace and mercy so you can show his grace and mercy. Thanks for your attention this morning. In fairness, I do have like 30 seconds left if you have a few comments or questions. <laughs> In life, we like to uh, measure ourselves against others. We like to compete the athletic side. We like to see how we, we fare. And it's easy to think we might be grace, graceful and merciful. And what I hear you saying is don't measure ourselves against others. Don't look around at others. Look at God. See if our grace and mercy is equivalent to his. And if not, it goes back to Eric's question. How do we get better? Well, we see the standard. We just need to be just like him. Great point. Thank you.